0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRose Show. I am so excited about today's guest. We are joined by historian, demographer, and author Neil Howe to discuss his newest book, The Fourth Turning Is Here, what the seasons of history tell us about how and when this crisis will end. In this episode, we do a deep dive into generational theory. We get into why we are already in the fourth turning, and some of those signs. We also discuss how this might play out, what some of those scenarios might look like, and how to be prepared. I really enjoyed having Neil on the show. I learned a lot from him, and I think you will too. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Neil Howe. Neil Howe, author of Fourth Turning and American Prophecy, What the Cycles of History, tell us about America's next rendezvous with destiny and the author of the newest book, The Fourth Turning, is here. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Neil, I read both of your books, and I've wanted to talk to you for ages, so I am so pleased to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Julia. Great to be here.
0: Well, I mentioned your first... Oh, it's not even your first book, but it was the one that... That's the one that I know the best, which was The The Fourth Turning. It came out in 1997. Um, I probably read it in probably 2012, 2013, thereabouts. And I've wanted to talk to you ever since. So I, gosh, I finished your your newest book, The Fourth Turning is Here. And maybe for the folks who are watching and listening, we should talk about the framework, um, the generational framework that you outline in the book, just to kind of level set um, and establish some of the, you know, the vocabulary, if you will.
1: Ah, the vocabulary, Yes. The, the, this most recent book is really the, um, uh, the latest of, of, of several books that, that I've written, uh, 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 the earliest ones with Bill Strauss, my partner, uh, who, who, who passed away in 2007. But the earliest book we wrote was a book called Generations, and that was back in 1991, so a long time ago. And uh, we wrote that in the late 1980s. Uh, and we weren't really interested in cycles of history at that time. Uh, we were just interested in generations and per- generational persona. What's why some generations seem so different than others. Now, uh, we were very interested being, you know, of, of, the boomer generation. We were very aware that, uh, we had, uh, grown up collectively so differently than our parents. uh, uh you know, our parents, uh, we're, we're at the same age. Our parents were splashing ashore at, at D Day and founding families and building battleships. Boomers had Woodstock and were taking voyages to the interior, having a completely different sense of who they were and what society needed and what they were going to pass on, you know, to future generations. And that fascinated us. Uh, generations was a big topic in America. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, there's a generation gap and there's just a tremendous amount of argument about the rising generation and the generation in power, the power elite, the establishment as it was called back then. And 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 then it kind of died away. You know, back in the 80s, hardly anyone talked about it. And we were wondering about this and we went back in American history and we actually told the entire story of America as a sequence of generational biographies. And we were amazed that no one had done that before. In other words, we started with the first migration of, um, of, of Puritans to the new world in the 1630s, you know, who came to New England uh, and set up the colony there. And, and most of them were young adults. And, and we went forward you know, taking these, these birth year groups, these social generations. And we ended up finally to today, or today at that time, which was uh, you know, Gen Xers, who were the young adults of that time. Uh, they hadn't yet had a name yet. Uh, so we just called them 13th generation, uh, sort of for the bad luck and ill timing of their life cycle, All right? So these were kind of 13ers born in the, in the sixties and seventies and the new generation of children, uh, no one even died about, right? I mean, much less give it, gave a generational name to, we knew that their first, uh, cohorts of that generation were going to graduate from high school in the year 2000. So we gave them the name. Millennial generation, and you know, uh, uh, unbeknownst to us, that would stick. Right, <laughs> so uh, that that term actually did catch on uh, o- over time. But what fascinated us, Julia, was that generations don't. First of all, even way back in the 17th and 18th century, people were familiar with generational differences, and and they talked about them, they argued about them. This is not new to America. But what's more interesting to us is that generations arrive in patterns. Certain kinds of generations always arrive after other gener- uh, generations. For instance, uh, a generation of, um, of uh, idealistic, you know, utopian, boomer-like generations who were born after a crisis, indulgently raised, come of age at a time of, of cultural awakening, uh, uh, protest against the powerful institutions of their parents, like boomers did, right? They're always followed by a much more Cynical, materialistic, matter of fact, uh, uh, generation of bottom line seekers, right? Like Generation X. But that, this is not new. This has happened repeatedly in American history. You look at the generation of, um, of, of Abraham Lincoln and Ralph Waldo Emerson or, or, uh, or uh, Walt Whitman, you know, just intoxicated with their own sense of themselves, a generation of feminists, commune founders, and abolitionists and idealists. They were followed by well, they were followed by um, uh, George Armstrong, Custer and Ulysses S. Grant, a generation of metal and muscle who were not really known for talking very much, but they got big, dirty jobs done, right, when the country needed it. And we've seen that pattern again and again. And we've also seen after a generation like the Gilbert or the Xers, that the generation comes after them is increasingly protected. Right. The nation goes through a moral panic over children. And suddenly we want to protect children. Of course, we're all familiar today with millennials, right? With the, you know, they're taught to be special and confident and their lives are more structured. And, and suddenly, you know, there are no more childless double movies, but there are all these cuddly baby movies like uh, that we all recall from the mid 1980s and, and a much more positive upbringing. And the generation in turn becomes much more oriented toward community toward uh, toward uh, uh, strong peer bonds and a much more stronger collective sense of where they want the country to go someday and and we've seen that again you know throughout american history so what this occurred to us is that this pattern of generations has to be linked to the pattern of history itself after all generations are shaped young by history but then they go on as parents and leaders to shape history right so it Pattern in generations has to be reflected with the pattern of history. And in fact, one thing that most historians have often noticed is that history has some, American history in particular, has some striking patterns. For example, great periods of civic reconstruction, emergency crisis, public mobilization, the creative destruction of big public institutions, the outer world of politics and economics and uh, infrastructure are these periods of crisis come about once every long human lifetime. Uh, we had one late in the, in, actually, in the middle of the colonial era, in the late 17th century, which is the Glorious Revolution and King Philip's War and Bacon's Rebellion. And, and everyone acknowledges this was a huge period of sort revolution and rebellion and war in the colonial period. And then about a lifetime later, we had the American Revolution. And a lifetime later, we had the Civil War. And a lifetime later, we had the New Deal and World War II, and then here we are today, Julia. Right here we are today. This is what we call the next fourth turning, and we can get into that a little bit why we call it the fourth turning. But it's it's interesting too that roughly halfway in between these great outer world crises, we have these periods of inner world awakening, right? Yeah. Uh, like the late '60s and '70s, yeah. and. It's very convenient in American history because we actually number them. We call it the first great awakening, the second great, and they occur roughly halfway in between the crises. And um, and in the crises, we fix the outer world and we rebond as a community. But in awakening, we refix the inner world of culture, religion, the art, the spirit. And we individuate more uh, away from the group, right? We've become more of a society of, of the impassioned you know, or spiritually intoxicated individuals. And that pattern, you could say, is almost the yin and yang of American history, right? Moving forward. And uh, and you can see that uh, the pattern, which in the, the next book we wrote, the fourth turning, we turned it around, we looked at the cycle of history first, and we looked at the generational drivers behind it. And that's where we really laid out this idea of history moving in these uh, lifetime length cycles, each divided into these generation long seasons, right? Of which there are four first turning, second turning, third turning. And the fourth turning that's the creative destruction. That's when the phoenix rises from the ashes. And that's when the nation and the republic reinvents itself and becomes, in some sense, a new republic. Um, and it's happened every time. Uh, we think it's, it's, uh, we're on the way to see it happening again.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the, the saculum that 80 to a hundred years, the four turnings, the high being the first turning, the awakening being the second turning, the unraveling, the third turning and the crisis being the fourth turning. And when you wrote your first or not, sorry, I keep saying the first book when you wrote the fourth turning and night and it came out in 1997, 25 years, um, before when we're speaking, I want to hear just what were some of the signposts for you um, when you started to realize, okay, we have entered, we are in the fourth turning. I'd love to hear from you Um, because I imagine having that paradigm, you're seeing things unfold that reinforce that thesis.
1: Well, we weren't. In 1997, we were still in the third turning.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um,
1: So we were looking ahead to a very different mood. There were no signposts. Um, it was um, it was it was a it was a it was a pretty nice time in 1997, right? The Clinton economy was beginning to warm up, wages were rising, uh, we were just beginning to go into the into the superheated dot com bubble, right before the bust. Uh, the light motif of the 1990s, and you could say of the unraveling of the third turning of the of the fall season of history, right? Julia was. Francis Fukuyama, do you remember that the end of history, where uh, individualism had triumphed, uh, capitalism and markets were everywhere, government was just going to kind of fade away, right? All the all the all the authoritarian leaders around the world would be disempowered due to the microchip, and, and I remember Ronald Reagan said that, Bill Clinton said that, almost every president at that time re- repeated that. That this, these new communication technologies were going to undermine all of this uh, kind of authoritarian groupthink of powerful governments, so we would be this these self-actualizing individuals that really didn't need groups anymore. And um, well, history didn't turn out that way, did it? <laughs> I think we can fair to say that it did not turn out that way. And uh, and we predicted that the change would happen just based on the timing of what we thought. That the entry into the fourth turning, what we call like catalyst into the fourth turning, would occur sometime in the middle of the 20, uh, uh, 2000 and 2010 decade. And it would start with a financial panic. We would say, a great devaluation. We called it the time. Uh, and in fact, you know, we had obviously 2008, uh, the, the great finan- the global financial crisis, the GFC, and, and, and I think that was, you know, not bad. Uh, kind of our entry into this um, and that it would it would be catalyzed and and further accelerated by certain kind of events. And as long as you're talking about the fourth turning, you may remember what some of our I think we had five sample events
0: mm-hmm. that
1: we, we actually proposed. I think one was um, one was a uh, a WMD terrorist attack on New York, as I recall? And again, this was 1997. Looking like, I'm Harvard. looking at
0: it right now, the chapter. On yeah, the, that was yeah.
1: one of them. Another one was um, Russia was going to invade a former uh, Soviet republic. Yep. Uh, another one was a pandemic. Yep. Uh, just going down the list. Uh, another one was a Tea Party rebellion forcing um, uh, 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 an end to any borrowing by the government and, and bringing all, you know, <laughs> threatening to bring all. Global credit to a stop, right uh, and and uh, of course, we've had a couple of episodes of that. I think the first one in 2011 I recall. I think that's when you're reading the book <laughs> right around the time of the uh, you, you remember that, that big crisis on that on the, on the debt. And the fifth one has not happened, but I would argue it' was still on the table, and that is a uh, nullification or secession by a state or a group of states to defy federal authority um, and you know looking around america today julia it's kind of out there isn't it still
0: yeah yeah no i'm i'm literally looking at that chapter too because i i do i remember the one about a pandemic being out there and that in the book you even said like they're one of these these plausible scenarios of these unraveling era trends being a pandemic and quarantine and whatnot um and those certainly caught my attention. Um, yeah, just when when you wrote that book, did you see? Because you're right, 1907. I mean, I was in elementary school, but pretty happy time. Um, did you see like an uptick in sales of the book? Over was it? Did it happen right away? Were there periods like maybe around the financial crisis or um, September 11th where people started to pick up more of the bookers, start to get more interested in the fourth turning?
1: It's. Um- the, the sales of the book are interesting. We, we had a lot of curious readers when it first came out, but let's face it, the mood of America didn't seem terribly uh, auspicious for the message, right? I mean, everyone thought things were pretty good in America at the time and why you worried about this stuff? Um, but it it rapidly kind of accelerated with each blow to come. I think certainly the uh, the GFC, the Tea Party, the election of Trump, uh, and the pandemic, uh, the book has an interesting history. Of the fourth turning, it's it sold well over a half a million physical copies. Uh, but I would say half have been sold since the pandemic. In case you're interested, I mean that gives you some idea, right? Uh, a book that's been out for 26 years, uh, you know, must have been sold over the past five years.
0: Yeah, no, that is an interesting statistic. Um, one of the other reasons I wanted to talk to you, like you mentioned earlier in the book Generations, you, you and your co-author coined the term millennials, which I, I actually didn't know until more recently. Um, but the role that my generation, I'm a millennial, the role that we play in the current fourth turning. Um, can you discuss that according to the theory, the role millennials play in this?
1: Well, I think it's one way to approach that is really to talk about what the what these turnings do right these turnings represent from from beginning to end a fundamental change in the american mood right and the mood of the country and the the kind of the solstice turnings like the longest days and the longest nights would be the summer and the winter right i mean that's kind of we really change direction and during the awakening the movement from beginning to end is from community to individualism that's that's sort of i mean there are a lot of Trends under that that we could talk about, but I would say that's the fundamental movement, right? Uh, in the awakening, it started out with cultural protest against uh, against the the patriarchy, against government, against uh, uh, against uh, uh, conformity, uh, against fitting in, against pleasing other people necessarily, and and it ended really, at, and we saw that in, in college campuses and in the inner cities. Um, and then it ended really more, that was more on the left. And then by the end of the era, late 70s, early 80s, it ended more on the right, right? With tax cuts, deregulation, almost in every aspect of our lives, we wanted less social discipline. We just wanted fewer people telling us what to do, right? And and a more likely governed world. Uh, and and ultimately, at the cutting edge of that, were boomers. Many of them eventually were fine voting for Ronald Reagan, right? Right. Um, because at least he would leave people alone and he wouldn't mind having um, you know the Beach Boys in the White House you know thanks to Nancy as I recall in the early 80s but this was a big deal at the time people don't remember that was a big deal. So we had this hugely individuated America and you have to say that the coming of age generation really best epitomized how America was moving. okay now let's move ahead to the fourth turning the generation coming of age throughout this and really moving, continuing to move fully into young adulthood, you know, well into their mid forties is a millennial generation. The movement we are making now is in the opposite direction. So in the awakening, there's society's supplying too much order and people don't want it. During the fourth journey, society is not supplying enough order and people want more. And that's really where millennials are at the cutting edge. And I do think that this is a generation that is, you know, shell shocked by insecurity, lack of a middle class, lack of any security in their lives, a lack of any assurance that their standard of living will ever overtake those of their parents, lack of any sense that this nation is investing in its future or avoiding future liabilities. There's any community direction whatsoever. And I think that the increased sense of order—and by the way, this is not just America. This is around the world. If you look at uh, the, the the Cambridge Center for Democracy does this in England, uh, they've been looking at polls for uh, you know people in their 20s and 30s around the world, and we see this in, in particularly in high-income countries. We also see it in Latin America, but around the world, younger people are losing faith in democracy. They think democracy is just a way for older people to keep what they have. Uh, for everyone to sort of protect those who already have not give any opportunities to those who don't have and to provide no security and no uh, no no institutional stability nothing that can be counted on by younger generations and 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 this too is an aspect of the fourth turning this is much like what we saw during the 1930s uh, when increasingly democracy was also in disrepute uh, and people were turning toward fascism or communism or you know any kind of alternative uh, but but we're seeing the same thing, and again, a lot of what we see is how social moods um recur,
0: yeah um Another thing that was fascinating to me was this notion of these archetypes for the various generations, the millennials being classified as the hero generation. Could you um explain the archetypes for the generations and why they matter?
1: so an archetype is a is a is a generation that encounters roughly the same social mood at the same age. I mean it's as simple as that, and as a result has certain uh, certain attitudes and behaviors in common with other members of the same archetype so for example, start with the profit archetype, the boomers, right, and and we always find the same pattern. They're born right after the crisis, right, so they don't remember the crisis; they have no memory of it, right. They're born in the aftermath. They uh, they they're surrounded by very powerful institutions after the crisis. Uh, they're raised in in very conformist, you know, strictly ordered communities. As you can imagine, the republic having in the aftermath. And they come of age at these times, what we call awakenings, right? And these are times of rebellion and the kind of the battering down of the, of the, of the cultural and social order that they fight around them. And then the weakening of those institutions. And later on, they become the, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the free thinkers and, and individualists of the unraveling, right? I mean, they, they, they 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 graze more than lead and and eventually they become uh the principled um, uh you know uh, the visionaries or ideologues uh, in elderhood uh, uh, during the next fourth turning we sometimes call them the gray champions that sometimes appear during the fourth turning uh always a generation oriented toward principle right that's what they learned in their awakening. uh it might be bizarre, it might be misguided principle, but it's always a sense that there's something beyond the material world which they really insist upon. And it's it's both subjective and it's individualist. Um a generation like the hero generation, by contrast, is born right after the awakening at a time when when uh childhood is not getting more is not getting uh when when institutions may be in disarray and individualism may be rampant, but families are actually becoming more protective, right? Whereas, suppose when boomers are raising up, you know, families are becoming gradually less protective, more indulgent, right? For boomers, becoming more, uh, uh, families are getting more involved in their childhood's life, and the children quickly become aware as they grow older that what the nation really doesn't have is any sense of structure or community, right? Institutions are broken down, and and millennials quickly intuit. That their life mission is going to be building institutions back up again, making them work, um, and ultimately their coming of age experience. We just talked about it, and later in life, these zero generations become great institutional defenders. So they they become attacked by the next great awakening when they're in old age, right? Do you remember the GI generation, the greatest generation. Mm-hmm who came of age, they were the the junior citizens of World War II, right? They were the Jimmy Stewart's, they were the the heroes. Uh, Every American thought of them as this heroic young generation. But by the late 1960s, early 1970s, they weren't junior citizens anymore. We we invented a new term to describe old people, senior citizens, right? We had never used that term until this generation reached old age. We called them senior citizens, and they wanted to defend the order they had built. And of course, who were attacking them? They're boomer kids, right? And so when they retired, uh, they went off to Sun City and Leisure World. You know, each segregated communities in the middle of the desert, where they where they wouldn't have to deal with the young people, and they wouldn't have to listen to their horrible music. And they could listen to Benny Goodman uh, and these these wonderful big bands. And uh, upbeat, optimistic, and they would leave their doors open, and they would be great. You know, they wanted to live with each other. They didn't want to live with their kids. Interestingly, as boomers get older, they don't want to live near each other, but they're all living with their kids, right? I mean, think of the difference. Um, we, we've seen the highest share of people in their late 20s and early 30s living with their parents since the late 1930s, Right. You remember Jimmy Stewart? You remember those, all those uh, Frank Capra movies with those old Victorian homes back in the late 1930s? We're talking about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, You Can't Take It With You, all those great classic movies. They were sheltered m- many generations living in the same home. Well, that all disappeared in the 1950s, 1670s. You know, there's the nuclear family and family size got smaller and smaller. How it's rising again. We're back. Again, that same world, except now it's an a McMansion. all these families are living, you know, are living together again. And uh, you know, the, the millennials, just like the G.I generation, is very likely to be living with their parents at a surprisingly advanced age. Um, and yeah, these are interesting, isn't it, how these things recur?
0: it is so it's so fascinating and when you outline it in the book to like all these themes like like living with living um with your with your parents so i suppose when we're older we're not going to want our kids to live with us um if if we're like the GIs. i do have a question um so when i think of the gis the greatest generation um you know i think of my grandfather's generation um and if they are the hero generation and i, I mean my grandfathers have passed but and there aren't as many of that age group around or those who served during World War II anymore. How Help me understand um, how the millennials kind of stack It's hard for me to think of them being, maybe I'm thinking about it the wrong way, millennials being the hero, if you will. Um, maybe I'm not.
1: Con- well, two, two things to remember. And the greatest problem for an historian is the historian always knows how it all ended. Which totally biases how they look at the past. And one thing to remember is that in the mid or late 1930s, the GI generation was known as sheltered, very much interested in community. I mean, an incredible share of them, 80, 85% voted for FDR and the New Deal. In in uh, 1932 and especially in 1936, it was the first generation of African Americans to vote for the Democratic Party rather than the party of Abraham Lincoln, right? So this was this was part of a huge realignment in politics that happened, and it was largely affected. It was certainly most represented by the younger generation, right? By this generation too young to participated in World War One, and and they had a they had a great sense of themselves as a community. But one thing, a few things we don't think about that generation is that many of the best and the brightest of them were isolationist, right? They were signing the Oxford pledgers in Yale and Stanford stadiums all the way up through 1937, even 1938. This was the pledge. It was designed in England after World War One. You'd sign a pledge. If your country declared war, you would never go and fight for you know king and country or you know what? Right, you, you would you would, you would, you would refuse to fight because World War One was was horrible, you know, it was a complete mistake. Only the only the arms makers got rich and all the rest. So, first of all, they were very isolationists. Secondly, many of the best and brightest were radicals. They were members of the Popular Front. Many of them joined the Communist Party. You remember now today we think of the greatest generation, we think of them as. Stolid defenders of the american flag well, th- these this was the generation of they either be- many of them believed they believed in stalin or trotsky you know what i mean i mean they thought that american capitalism was completely at an end um i would say that their radicalism beats beats anything you see in brooklyn today you know <laughs> by a long shot i mean i mean think about it uh how many of those uh, hipsters you know would actually would would actually you know be card carrying members of the Comintern and take their orders from Moscow? But but here is what we forget. And if you would ask, this is the most fascinating thing. I I really take this on in the book, Julie. And that is, if you would ask people in the late nineteen thirties, if you would tell them, you know, in a few years we're going to have a huge crisis, right? Um, a, a, a lot of violence. We're going to have a big war. What will that war be about? Most of them probably would have just assumed it would be capitalism against labor. you know it would be some kind of internal war uh uh that we, we we sometimes were actually seeing in Eastern Europe or Germany or Russia right I mean that's what people would have assumed uh and 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 i I talk a lot about that in the book about how the nature of the fourth turning climax is very hard to foresee. Uh, even when you're in the fourth turning, uh, who could have foreseen that a nature as bitterly divided as America was? Uh, FDR, you have to remember that Republicans in the 1930s thought it was the Red Decade, and and popular front supporters of the New Deal thought of the 1930s as the Fascist Decade. Right? I mean, that's how divided these two sides were. And uh, there were there were running battles in the streets between you know uh, Pinkertons and and you you know sit down strikers. It was a violent and bitterly divided time. Uh, many many people in America thought of Franklin Roosevelt as Franklin Stalino Roosevelt. Anyway, you get my idea, right? Yeah. I mean, this this was how divided we had the Spanish Civil War going on. We had you know fascists invading other countries. We had fascist takeovers of much of Eastern Europe. You Japan invading uh, Manchuria and China, um, it were a very dangerous and darkening world at the time. And, and everyone knew it and felt it. This is what we don't reconstruct. We think afterwards of the greatest generation, they were always that way. You have to imagine them as young people in battle, not knowing what the future would hold at that point. And we go back in earlier fourth turnings. We look in much more detail in this book than we did in our earlier about what actually happens within a fourth turning and how people are actually dealing with it, sort of the stages of the un- unfolding of a fourth turning. Uh, the American Revolution, the Civil War, um, the, uh, the Glorious Revolution, we even go back in English, history. We look at the Spanish Armada, we look at the War of the Roses. We, we look at a lot of these four turnings around the world and we sort of look at how did it look to each generation at the time. I think that sense of immediacy is what we so often lack. The word "hero," unfortunately, is very often a gauzy image where we look back and we think, "Oh, that's how we remember them."
0: Mm. It's not how they
1: started out.
0: That's a really good point. Like how it's not how it started out, but um, the aftermath too, because they, they were the ones who built the the institutions uh, going into the the springtime, the spring, uh, the first turning after the, we get through the fourth turning. Um, Speaking of the fourth turning though, and you mentioned the climax um, in the book, you kind of give a timeline or time frame of the, the millennial crisis, if you will. Can we talk about that? And I know no one can foresee exactly what the climax is, but are there like plausible scenarios that you think about?
1: Well, first of all, the timing, we think it's, you know, we think, we think that the, the fourth turning will be over uh, probably sometime in the early 2030s. I mean, that's my guess, climaxing maybe at the end of the 2020s. I mean, that's kind of how we look at history. Uh, we think that the, 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 the seculum and the generational lengths are dilating somewhat because phases of life are increased. People are living longer. Mm-hmm. Young people are taking longer to actually come of age as full adults. People are running for a political office later. And this is something we've seen in history. The the length of generations gets slightly younger, slightly older, depending on the economy of the time and depending on certain sort of social trends. But that's what we that's our best guess. I think the other thing to emphasize is that increasingly these turnings are global turnings. And uh that is something we talked about in the book. And that's actually something we did not talk about in our earlier book, The Fourth Turning, how increasingly the most of the world is on the same schedule. Uh, the, the Great Depression and World War II were global events, right? It was all the entire Anglophone world. It was all of Europe, including Russia, obviously. And it was South Asia, East Asia. It was Japan and China and Korea. It was, it was most of the world, right, was involved in this. And, and the, what we think of as the, um, as the Woodstock era, was an awakening around the world. You had violent student protests. Not just in uh, Berkeley and uh, Columbia University, but you had it in Paris, in Berlin, in Rome, in 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 Tokyo. In in Beijing, you had the, the cultural revolution. You had the, the red guard generation throwing off, you know, two or three millennia of, of Confucian culture. In Buenos Aires, in Mexico City, this was a Global rebellion by youth against the institu- institutions of their parents. I, I do think what actually worries me is that we see these same trends today toward populism and authoritarianism around the world. You know, people sometimes think of, well, that's that's hitting this country. It, it's it's not. Not only is it not just this country. It's not even primarily this country. It's Latin America. It's Southern Europe. It's. Uh, Eastern Europe, it's, it's, it's Narendra Modi and India, it's Burma, it's China, it's the Philippines. You, you know what I'm talking about, Julia. This, this is around the world. Uh, and I think these gener- as these generational trends become global, it's actually more reason to be worried. Uh, uh, many of the things that I, we talked about in the fourth turning, you remember like, things like secession, right? And, uh, or nullification by states you know, defying federal order. Even 10 years ago, no one even bothered to do an opinion poll on the likelihood of civil war. It was that far up the radar screen. Today, they do it routinely. And it's about half of America thinks it's like. Um, the idea of geopolitical conflict, again, didn't seem there. Today, we have a major land war in, in, in Europe, and we see the drum beat every day. Uh, with a full court press on Taiwan, right, in, in in the Western Pacific. So this is attracting our attention, right? And and we kind of are uh are spellbound, right? Because we see these things happening. We see but we, we have our time putting them in broader historical perspective. Uh and and I, you know Bill and I laid out this territory long before anyone knew about any of this. Mm-hmm we said this is generally how the moods progress. Now, you raise the point, what kind of events are we talking about right what we 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 talk about a climax, what kind of climax? um well, it's that's a sobering thought. uh you know all all of the fourth turnings of American history have featured total war, and in fact, all the total wars have have happened in fourth turnings. so it's like a perfect correspondence going back, right. Um, I think it, I, I, I never say it requires war, you know, I, I, I think, I just can't be that pessimistic. I think maybe there is an alternative to war, but I, I will say this, it requires a sense of total urgency and public mobilization, right? In a way that every generation is scared straight, right? And, and it requires that, uh, in order to actually take the country into and through society, into and through that phase of, of 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 creative destruction of public institutions. Uh, if it isn't war, it will feel like war. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, uh, a big but, question, which I devote a fair amount of time to, looking at the different turnings, both here and abroad, is the question, is it internal or external? And that's what everyone wants to know. Are we talking about civil war or external war? And I was trying to say before, it's often indeterminate until well into the crisis. Um, one thing is true is that the two actually kind of overlap in a weird way. Uh, anyone in a civil war often wants to make it an external war, particularly the losing side. They always want allies, right? <laughs> if you're on the losing side of a civil war, you want a foreigner to come in on your side. So there's always a tendency in a civil war to make it into an external war. Um, and we found that happening repeatedly in history, uh the american revolution you know seemed like kind of an external war u.s against britain but of course we knew we couldn't win on our own, so we brought in france and actually france hadn't been there invaded made it a, a global conflict uh it's unlikely that that the patriots would have won uh as as quickly as they did during the civil war of course the south wanted to bring in France or Britain on their side. They wanted to get recognized. There were probably one major battlefield victory for Lee away from doing that. Unfortunately, he lost in Antietam and, and, and Lincoln, you know, a week later sort of issued the the Emancipation Proclamation, which really uh ensured that that France and England would would continue to support the Union. Um, and again, during the 1930s, as we were talking about, how indeterminate was it that we would migrate from being a nation of isolationists to very rapidly after the fall of France and the beginning of the Battle of Britain, suddenly we saw this huge tide of opinion shifting Mm -hmm. and suddenly America spending enormous amounts fiscally on becoming the arsenal of the democracy. And that really occurred in the fall of, of, of 1940, about a year before Pearl Harbor, when we saw this decisive change in the American mood away from internal conflict fixation toward fixating on an external conflict, but fascinating to think of, and, and again, you can go as we do. We, we look at earlier instances as well, and it's fascinating to think about how we define community. But one thing is clear is that in, in the context of that climax, we redefine who we are as a nation. And and interestingly, we undergo so many of these social transformations, Julia, from um, from privilege to equality. That's the other thing that happens. Society becomes more equal by the end of a fourth turning. Mm. Through the process of crisis and the institutions set up afterwards, we go from defiance to authority. Authority becomes much more powerful by the end of a fourth turning, which enables society to do bigger things as a unit. Um Long-term policy reforms, big changes in policy, large infrastructure, becomes much more likely by the end of a, of every fourth turning. We saw that at the end of the Civil War, the transcontinental railroad and all the all the all the, uh, all, the all the colleges set up by the states, the National Monetary Union, the income tax, everything was set up then. We saw the Constitution at the end of the American Revolution, something that no one thought of before. Um, but again and again, we see that. And then finally, the change in the culture from irony to convention. And I like to talk about culture. I like to talk about religion. I like to talk about the inner life. I don't just talk about politics and the mm-hmm. outer life. I, I really like to talk about... I'll tell you, Julie, I started out in college as an undergraduate and you know ever since I, I've been studying uh, 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 history and economics. But, as an undergraduate, I was a lit major. <laughs> I was an English major, you know i i studied John Milton, you know I love poetry i i love and and the life wor- the the light for the inner world, the light the cultural life of the nation it fascinates me as well, and i I try to give it adequate place in the story,
0: yeah, I gotta say, you know, I love listening to you, and I could probably listen to you for hours because everything you're saying it's just. So fascinating to me, and I know the viewers are going to enjoy it as well. I do want to just ask a few more questions because I know we don't have much time left together. Okay, um, and again, you, incredible, just incredible read. Um, I did the audiobook version as well, which was like it was a twenty-hour listen. But I, I want to go back and listen some more as well.
1: Oh, well, Julie, I have to, I have to mention there. <laughs> I actually did the audio.
0: I know you did. Yeah, you narrated. And, and,
1: and that's an ordeal. So worth discussing in of itself. But anyway, I can only I, imagine. I
0: heard you, you have to be in a little sound booth. Okay. Um, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about macroeconomics, finance, investing. I know you're with eye Risk Management as well. Um, can we explore how the macro, the economic picture, um, maybe here domestically, maybe even globally... How does that tie into the fourth turning as well? What kind of undercurrents do you see from that?
1: Um, I covered that, You know, the, the, the three big things that I worry about as we approach the climax is another economic downturn, another crash. Um, I sometimes uh, I ask people, what was the second worst economic downturn of the 20th century? And people serve their blight for a while, right? Okay, well, let's see, the Great Depression. Well, it was the depression of 1937. Right, and people aren't aware of how incredibly catastrophic that was. The stock market went down by more than fifty percent. I mean, it's this enormous GDP, but it just got lost, right? It was just considered to be part of this huge great depression. but that is a the 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 amount of uh, economic and financial volatility during the fourth turning is always very large, and I think there's a lot we haven't seen yet uh just due to just generally. You know, uh, elevated valuations, all the all the effort that the that the Fed and the and 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 uh, you know the the Congress has been doing to keep everything on stimulus. I think the problem with fiscal stimulus is these enormous deficit projections that are now coming out. I I actually go through the CBO's thirty year projection every every year with my clients, and uh, we're going to have another one coming out. Another one just did come out uh, as soon as they begin to reprice. Uh, those interest rates higher you know particularly real interest rates higher you're going to see that thing explode right and then suddenly Congress won't be able to borrow anymore and if uh, the Fed similarly feels that it can't and it it's longer for you know it's higher for longer or higher for a long time uh, that could be a severe downturn not during the climax during the climax government will do whatever it needs to right. To gather material it'll the old inflation is fine borrowing is fine you know when the survival of the country is at stake when it's that kind of urgency no one really cares so the idea is just to have everyone employed and do everything you can to uh to to requisition resources that that's always happens during the climax but i think before the climax is what worries me you know something in the next you know year two years three years right um uh I mean, if you're asking for timing, so, but enormous volatility. And I often tell people that inflation is always a strategy always in a fourth 30 is one way which government gets out of the value of its nominal debt. That's just a rule. So I always tell people as a long-term proposition, um, you know, long-term fixed income securities that, that aren't indexed are just not a good thing to be invested in. You know what I mean? Because that, that always in other words, a combination of, uh, of, of higher inflation, re, there's one term losses on the bond holders and, and, and often financial repression on top of that. so they can't actually trade out of that stuff, you know particularly for a financial institution. I think it's very important for uh, genuine diversification. Um, uh, commodities always do well. And, and two sectors I look at as being really good are, uh, are the unsexy sectors of the S;P, materials I mean whoever invests in materials I think materials are becoming more important as well as manufacturing and I would say mm-hmm. the defense aspect of manufacturing I think is already catching on it's done very well the entire world is arming again right and and we still don't have enough ammunition you know we don't have enough missiles or ammunition to to do a war in the Pacific for more than about 24 48 hours right so so I think this is also becoming a need. I actually just think this is simply a long-term trend you're going to see. Most of all, Julia, let me just end with this, where maybe my most important bit of advice is, is that when public institutions are being stressed to their utmost to supply urgent needs for the communities, national community's immediate survival, a lot of the entitlements we're used to uh, may be carried back. Or maybe inflated away. So I tell everyone when it comes to their own life, uh, buttress, buttress yourself and brace yourself by getting to know your community better and getting in better, uh, having better relationships with your own family. Uh, I think every financial advisor has that one question that always comes to them What about long term care insurance? Which I think is a terrible market. And, you know, just there's no way to get the good price on long term care insurance, in my opinion but ultimately everyone's long-term care insurance is is their family right Mm -hmm. and and for a lot of people who spent a lot of the 1990s and the oos not really necessarily developing a community where maybe not on great terms with their family i know this sounds a little bit bizarre but i think reinforcing those relationships because when the chips are down Particularly in a forth turning scenario, historically, that's what everyone depends upon, right? I mean, that's what's really going to protect you. It's going to give you information, it's going to give you contacts, it's going to give you community support. When you know people may call your character or personality into question, it's very important to be plugged in uh, in this. Yeah. Uh, so, so, millennials are constantly talking about FOMO, fear of missing out, always wanting to be connected with each other. They actually have the right instinct going into it. Going into a fourth turning, don't become too isolated.
0: That is such good advice. I like that. Um, I'm going to sneak in one last question because I, I did, I wanted to ask you, like, how do you prepare, whatnot? And it sounds like you know, really investing in those relationships. So maybe my final question will be, Neil, what is the that one risk that keeps you up at night? What is that one thing that's always on your mind that you keep thinking about?
1: Um. I mean two things. One's domestic; the other is geopolitical. I mean, the geopolitical thing is that this is the fourth, first fourth turning we've gone into, in advance already possessing uh, weapons of mass destruction. In fact, you know, nine countries around the world possess nuclear weapons. Uh, it'll soon be ten ten, ten, I think, when when we add Iran. Um, we've never had that before, but I'm telling you. Uh, if we had had them, Amanda, I imagine if Richmond or Washington had possessed a WMD in 1963, would they have used it? Oh, I think they would have. <laughs> I think they would have, Julie. I, I think they definitely would have, given what was at stake and 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 the and the the scale of losses the two sides were considering. Entering the next fourth turning, we did not have them, but we spent billions of dollars and put the best and brightest of our young scientists to work 24/7 in the Manhattan project uh recently so you know showcased in the in the uh in the recent movie that's out there in the theaters uh uh about Oppenheimer. but uh we put them to work developing one which they did and we immediately put it to use now we're going into a crisis with all these things out there that worries me Um, uh, and on the domestic side, I worry about, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge optimist in America. And let, let me just, before I get to the domestic side, I just want to make this one point. I'm a huge optimist on America. And people often say these, these four turnings sound so catastrophic. They sound like doom. And I say, no, they are the rite of passage we go through to reconstruct and rejuvenate our institutions for the next cycle, to tip the playing field you know, away from the privilege and the old, you know, back to the young and create a way in which the young can actually create a new world for themselves and their own kids, which they can't do today. And, and in other words, it's a necessary stage for us uh, to remain adaptable and to remain oriented again toward what's to come, F- forests need fires, rivers need floods. And societies sometimes need these experiences, Julia, uh, and 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 we have golden ages often, uh, upon their completion. So I, I'm I'm very optimistic about the future. The one thing I would hate to see is is a uh, a divided America, right? We do know around the world some poor turnings not ending well, right? Americas is typically ended in the in the end they've ended fairly well. They ended on, on uh, successfully for, for sort of Anglo-American civilization as a whole. But of course, there's always the risk. And I think the, the, the most tragic risk would be is if we sort of internally broke up in some way. And uh, I guess that brings us back to one of those predictions in the fourth turning. It's kind of out there. It's sort of the down curve that hasn't been flipped up, right? So that worries me.
0: Yeah. Well, Neil, I have to say, I have so enjoyed having you on the show. And you've taught me a lot over the years just from your writings. And I just appreciate you being so generous with your time and your ideas. And you're always welcome to come back anytime. Folks, go pick up the new book, The Fourth Turning Is Here What the Seasons of History. Tell us about how and when this crisis will end. Neil Howe, thank you so much for being so generous. Really appreciate you.
1: Great. Thank you, Julie.